1: All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Barbel Medicine Podcast. This is episode number twenty-seven, part two, with Spencer Nadolski. If you haven't listened to part number one yet, check out the show notes. I've linked it there, and I hope you guys enjoy the show.
2: Sometimes they come in and they've, you know, they've tried many diets. They're they're four hundred pounds, and you can just just talking to them like you get an idea. If you want to try again? We can try more different medicines, and they're kind of like, I don't know. Those are the people. It's like, look, they've tried and they failed so much. You. You don't want to put them through that. Here's here's something that's like an X factor. The patients that become, I don't want to say obsessed, but borderline obsessed, meaning that they buy in so much that it doesn't overtake their lives, but they just, it's a big part of their lives now. They love fitness. Those are the ones uh, that do extremely well.
0: Well, it's because we're the people, we see the people who that stuff doesn't work for. The people yeah. who that doesn't work for don't come to us for stuff, you know? Yep,
2: exactly. I think it's the way of the future I think we're kind of on that forefront um, of making it seem kind of sexy uh, you know barbell medicine you, you know like people I think you know and even CrossFit um, you know they're they, they're coming out with their CrossFit health thing and I, you know I don't necessarily agree with all their messages but they're putting they're trying to get all physicians to a, uh, CrossFit certified if they want to I don't know if it's it comes with a fee but I know um, that's their initiative I I don't think it's a bad thing getting you know physicians into exercise.
1: Do you have like a top three like medications that you actually like? Because our our listenership probably not familiar with with the the medications that are being used in this in this situation.
2: Yeah, top three. Number one would be something called Qsimia, which is a combination of fentramine and pyramine. Unfortunately, the company that made this, Vivas or Vivus, I don't know how you say it. I think they're going to go. I think they're going out of business. Uh, so I a lot of times use fentramine monotherapy first to make sure that they tolerate it. About a half a tab, around 15 milligrams. It's only monotherapy, meaning just, just the fentramine alone. The FDA is only approved for like 12 weeks at a time. Uh, the the Q-Symia in the combination together. Uh, is approved indefinitely as long as people have significant weight loss, but it's expensive. It's like 150 bucks a month. Insurance never pays for it. Unfortunately, that one, I, that one, it just, that one works the best. It just works the best. It it combines it with topiramate, fentramine with topiramate. Topiramate is not a controlled medicine. Fentramine is. Fentramine is a sympathomimetic, um, uh, that kind of works similarly to like methamphetamines, but, um, they, they're not addictive uh, and don't cause as many side effects. Uh, the topiramate, um, topiramates actually was used for seizures, you know, anti-seizure medicine. Then it was they found it helped with migraines, and then people were losing a little bit of weight. So, um, has some side effects. So when you combine the two of them in lower doses, uh, you're able to get that efficacious appetite suppressant without the side effects. Uh, interesting. Enough. I love Qsymia. I just wish uh, I wish it were not so expensive, and I wish they weren't going out of business. The the next uh, the next medicine I um, I really like is something called Saxenda. It's a high dose liraglutide, which is a glucagon like peptide one agonist. And um, this was the, these uh, types of medicines. They were originally used for uh, diabetes, type two diabetes. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever talked about these on the show, GLP-1 agonist, but it's essentially the stuff that's released from your uh, intestines. Um, so, okay, here's a good thing. Here's a good story about this. If we have a little bit of time. But in – I don't think it was like the 50s or 40s, they wanted to see whether your insulin release would go up what if you drank sugar versus where you injected it. And in my mind, if you injected it, it's getting right to your bloodstream, I would assume that you would release more insulin. What they found is that when you drank the sugar, your insulin went higher. So what they called it, this incretin effect, the insulin secretion uh, or intestinal secretion of insulin effect, incretin. And uh, then they figured it out. They they wound up finding it was this uh, glucagon-like peptide one. And then they, you know, obviously big pharma – Figured out a way in these uh, Gila monsters uh, in their saliva, whatever. Anyway, they they got down to these, these little uh, molecules, and now they're making all sorts of peptides that are lasting forever. But anyway, th- this this stuff actually slows down gastric emptying. There's multiple receptors in the brain that um, that have this GLP-1, and it causes it it will knock someone's appetite right out. It can make people nauseous, but. It's an injectable, unfortunately, but it's you know subcutaneous, tiny little needles you barely even feel. That one's super powerful, and even sometimes I combine that with the if People really have bad hunger, but I love that one. Um, uh, the third one is a combination of bupropion uh, and naltrexone. So it's contrave or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Trade name is contrave. Uh, interesting stuff. Bupropion was used for uh, depression, but it's also used for smoking cessation. Uh, it works up in the, the mesolimbic pathway uh, with dopamine and norepinephrine, and, and it helps people stop smoking. Now, trexone is used, it's an, an opioid antagonist, um, and it's used in drinking cessation. Hmm. So, what's interesting is, you know, there's some, I could get into some real nuanced stuff, but the combination of the two will increase satiety in this one part of your uh, hypothalamus. But, um, but those two things together may actually help with those who have this kind of like craving, mm-hmm. real craving sensation. Maybe issues with their reward pathway that you know the the reward pathway is basically where you're full, and you still want pie, and you're like I don't know why I'm I'm full but I still want pie. You, you you that's that's part of that pathway, so that uh, medicine actually works up there as well and can be beneficial. I've, I've some patients do amazingly well on it. Some people don't lose any anyway, weight, and that's when you gotta change that medicine. But those are my top uh, three go-tos. There's some other ones out there, but um, that's what I would look into if I were uh, needing one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should advise people to like not go on the black market to obtain said medications because there are adverse side effects and reactions that you can have that need to be managed or uh, uh, at least observed by a medical professional. So, you know, don't go on like a website and buy this stuff and just be like yeah i don't know man i feel like i'm getting like pulmonary hypertension i'm not sure like what's (laughs) um you know that so that yeah so that would be like non-surgical management in addition to the conservative sort of therapy so obviously prescribing a very individualized like dietary uh manipulations and exercise interventions when do you consider surgery or referring for surgical evaluation like is there let's say that there are two different person uh two different people so person one that when uh would you like refer that person just directly you see them for the first time and you're like hey i gotta refer to you like right now and then when like w- a person that you've worked with for a period of time and you're like you know what we need to uh, refer to you like what what are the two situations where that happens
2: yeah so just for briefly just like the medicines we talked about the indications the 27 plus a comorbidity mi and a 30 so with surgery it's 35 plus a comorbidity like type 2 diabetes uh, or just anything over a 40 BMI. And so when these people come into the door, it really depends. Like if kind of on, on the same spectrum, I can look at somebody and probably have a good idea, but I've been wrong. I've been wrong. People surprise me. Like, you know, I have, I'm, a, I'm pretty sure this person's not going to lose any weight, despite trying some of these different therapies. Um, uh, but I've been wrong before. And I'm just like, wow. and it, And just impressed, but, sometimes they come in and they've, you know, they've tried many diets. They're, they're 400 pounds and you can just, just talking to them. Like you get an idea. Do you want to try again, we can try more different medicines. And they're kind of like, I don't know. Those are the people that's like, look, they've tried and they failed so much. You, you don't want to put them through that. And eventually they'll have to come back to you if you're working with them medically and you'll have to watch them through for six months Uh, try to at least attempt to lose weight because insurance companies want to see that before bariatric surgery. But in those cases, I tend to send right away. Otherwise, I'll give it a good, I'll give it my best and with best coaching and medical practices and um, see if we can get some uh, a good at least 10% response in weight loss. But uh, otherwise, I'll I'll just send them on and work with the surgeon.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's been my my similar experience when I have referred people for bariatric surgery evaluation. And and I think there's a negative stigma, particularly amongst the, like the health in the health field, you know, are uh, 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 particularly practitioners without medical training that, Oh, surgery is like a last ditch resort. But that's not an evidence-based opinion. I mean, if you look at like long, long uh, long-term success data, like surgery, kicks kicks yeah. ass you know i know it's
2: like sometimes i'm like i wish i were i kind of wish i were a surgeon and then i realize i'm like i'm like freaking stupid with my hands i would never be a good surgeon but uh i <laughs> know it's by far by far better data than medical therapy or conservative therapy unfortunately i wish it weren't i wish that weren't the case i just wish yeah. but they kick our butts
0: I remember watching, I remember watching some of those laparoscopic ruin wise back in medical school. It was just like amazing watching somebody just rearrange someone's anatomy. And then I know know that like, Hey, five days from now, this person's going to be cured of diabetes. That is neat.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, there are, so, you know, the overarching theme here is when the benefits of a gastro gastric sur, uh, bypass or, or a similar surgery outweighs the risk of not only the surgical procedure, uh, but like the post-surgical uh, complications, you know, because there are things that you, that you're going to may have issues with, like dumping syndrome and, uh, malabsorption diseases and stuff like that. And that's gotta be monitored, you know, uh, indefinitely. S- but the bet, if the benefit outweighs those risks, that's the person who needs to be referred. So I would really like to kind of temper the sort of negative stigma that surgery has. It's not a failure of like willpower or like you just didn't try hard enough or you didn't try enough things. It's just that, hey, at this point, I mean, you could spend another 20 years chasing this dragon of like weight loss or we could go like change your life now, you know. And for some folks, particularly, you know, as as you discussed, BMI or 40 or multiple medical comorbidities that would uh, uh, benefit from this management like right now those are the people who need to be referred and a failure to do so is you know effectively malpractice on some level because you're just not giving a, pers- a person their best chance to succeed and live a high quality life uh uh you know and and not develop uh complicated disease processes so yeah. i
0: think the way that the you know the way i think about it seeing the entire spectrum of of the complications of obesity like especially on the inpatient side for example yeah. but it's like hey if if doing if, if doing this surgery sooner rather than later because if you do it later they will carry this diabetes and hyperglycemia for longer let's say they progress to renal failure and need dialysis or something like that right like that's super common or they need an amputation or something like that if if doing the surgery now prevents this person from needing to be on dialysis for the rest of their life because i cure their diabetes and we can get yeah. them lifestyle better it's like huge 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 you know uh you know benefits from a cost standpoint medical system as well as the patient psychological standpoint i mean that being on dialysis for your life is depressing you know and then maybe needing a transplant afterwards like that's what i'm talking about when we see all this the road that the the roads that people go down when this stuff is untreated or unfixed chronically
1: yeah absolutely and as much as we're like saying this may be a magic bullet it's really not though because there are a bunch of people who fail gastric bypass or other surgeries so it's just at, at the point that you're considering this, uh, I, I do think that the medical evaluation is important. So, yeah, I, it's good to have some some backup there. And you're not like, oh, you're crazy, man. Just just try harder. You know, yeah, just exactly. come on, man. Eat less. Move more. Try harder. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the it, carbs, it, get off the couch.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and again, it, we're only laughing because it's just. We recognize the the gravity of, of the situation is a big problem, and then we just need to do a better job at, at referring appropriately and, and managing these things.
0: Um, well, it's because we're the people – we see the people who that stuff doesn't work for. The people yeah. who that doesn't
1: work for don't come to us for stuff. You know? yep, exactly. Right, right, right. right, right. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's an interesting thing, particularly as, it like, societal influences on behavior. When when you see high-level athletes or, or what we would, you know, what you could further boil down to is, like, the high-level responders to whatever intervention. In the physical culture, it's high-level responders to training, nutrition, or whatever. You say, well, this, it worked for them. Look at that. Like, I can do that, you know. And But that might not be the case, you know. If you don't have the same genetic makeup, the same uh, sort of epigenetic changes that have occurred over a lifetime, you know. It may not work for you. And so you can't look to the people who have, by definition, over-responded to a given stimulus and say that's the normal experience because it's, by definition, not. So using using the high-level athlete or high-level responder as sort of advertisement is, is nothing new. That's been going on for a long time, but that may not be you – know, results uh, atypical. Uh, and, and so we have to yeah. – yeah, exactly. we have to manage our expectations appropriately. Um, okay, so kind of wrapping up this, uh, this obesity section, we have like a, a one more on like exercise and, and medicine and how those tie in together. <sighs> Best data to date on long-term sustainability of like dietary – nutritional interventions for weight loss or weight management probably come from the American Weight Loss Registry. I and mean, it's just like the biggest collection of like behavioral changes that that people are doing in practice – um, and, and so things you get out of that, are like people eat breakfast on the regular, they have some sort of accountability that where they're regularly either tracking calories or their weight or regularly going to meetings to interact with either professionals or, or peers. That's like kind of helping them stay on the straight and narrow. They watch less TV, they're more active on average, you know, less screen time, et cetera, et cetera. Outside of those, what do you see in your practice that, uh, 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 are associated with the highest levels of success? What sort of either behavioral changes or interventions you see that are like best for long-term sustainability?
2: Yeah, so do you want me to tell you the people that are the most successful or the things that I feel like when I, my my treatment plans that, are, that seem the most successful? So I'll just say the, the people that track, the people that track their, their calories and macronutrients, they're above and beyond the most successful. But I will say that there's so many that hate doing that, that it's not, I can't blanketly say that that's what everybody needs to be doing because it can psychologically mess with people. But I will say that a lot of my most successful guys and and gals, they have some sort of form of tracking their intake because using awareness and intuition, just I wish it worked well. But when you got pizza in front of you and things like that, I intuitively would like to eat the whole pizza. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> like that's well,
2: what I, I want to. So like it's some sort of way to, to track themselves without relying on their, completely relying on their internal cues. I, I think it's very powerful. Having some sort of community support system. And and then here's here's something that's like an X factor. The patients that become, I don't want to say obsessed, but borderline obsessed meaning that they buy in so much that it doesn't overtake their lives, but they just, it's a big part of their lives now. They love fitness. Those are the ones uh, that do extremely well. I will say, though, that like you said, there may be something that, something about exercise feels better for them than other people that that don't have that. Something about, maybe something about their family and support system allows for them to do it without as much pain and suffering. So like, I don't know, but people these people that buy into it and just get a little bit a little bit crazy about it uh, without making it pathologically crazy. They're the ones that do amazing.
0: There's talk about like personality types as it pertains to training in the powerlifting world right now. And so maybe there's like, you know, a little healthy dose of neuroticism that some of those people have that helps them, helps them adhere better. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, if you went back and and, and figured out people's natural temperaments, you know, that have been developed throughout uh, childhood through into their mid twenties and, and figured out how that comported to their dietary success. That you're going to see parallels, like, well, this particular approach works for people with this level of neuroticism, and this particular approach maybe works better for people who are, uh, you know, a little more anxious or disagreeable. Or, it's
0: also like it, it, it's also like you said that that you know, eating food and all the, and and kind of this lifestyle stuff, it has a significant psychological and social component. So basically you know, we're painting this picture of yet again, like a biopsychosocial model for obesity and obesity management. And so all your eating habits and what your parents did and all this stuff as a kid, like all of that plays a role in the same way that when we talk about pain, it's like, Hey, what happened you know, when, when you, when you hurt your knee as a little kid and your mom like rushed and coddled you and everything over your knee pain, how does that translate into how do you respond to pain as an adult? So there's similar stuff, you know, when it comes to, you know, dietary lifestyle,
1: eating habits, social behaviors, things like that uh, long-term. Yeah, yeah, just absolutely. take just just take away five calories. That's that's, the, make- <laughs> that's, that's the management. Well, yeah. So intuitive eating is actually like another hot dietary like intervention that's been making some waves. People are like, yeah, I just do eat intuitively, and uh, I've been getting a lot of questions about it. And my response is, if you are trying to make a large scale change in your behaviors, it's unlikely that. Your current psychological interaction with your environment will allow you to intuitively eat in a manner that makes you successful at losing weight uh, or gaining weight. You know if that's not not a thing a thing that you're trying to do. So you have to you can't be intuitive when you're trying to make large scale changes. Now, if you've successfully dieted or gained weight for a long period of time, you may be able to intuitively be in maintenance mode, right? But because you've had so much practice, right, you're more skilled at the thing. But you can't intuitively eat your way to like weight loss, (laughs) you know, if you're if you're, you know, uh, your BMI is 40, your waist is 45. That's otherwise you would have done it.
2: They've had trials and there is some weight loss, but it's very it's it's not robust to what you know, whatever term you want to use. It's not significant. I would I, I wouldn't say clinically significant, but some of them have done a little bit. okay. but I agree with you. Yeah. Once you've practiced now, you can probably say, all right, I can try to intuitively do what I was just doing I particularly think. for maintenance you know but it's
1: like like so like how many bodybuilding shows uh have you done Spencer I've only done one uh but so if you had done if you've done like 10 for instance uh, and you were trying to just lean out you weren't trying to go get on stage again but you were trying to like lean out some more for whatever particular reason, you could probably do that intuitively again, because this, you've had so much practice and experience doing so, but still, if you wanted to get on stage and like compete at a very high level, you're going to require more specific interventions, even with all that practice and experience. So, I mean, that's just, that's the same way with like training, you know, Austin, you and I, if we were just like, you know what, I don't, know. I'm just, I'm not, if we just wanted to go in maintenance mode yeah, you can wing it, Yeah, you can wing it. Yeah. yeah for sure. uh, and, and be okay. But if you're like, actually, I really want to deadlift 800 pounds, you know, you're going to have to take specific yeah. interventions to, to go do that. Yeah. Um, okay. Shifting gears a little bit. I'm sure that's going to become a meme. Um, I just want to talk. A, I have a few questions about exercise and medicine and kind of how the, they are integrated or not integrated. Um, so Dr. Nadolski can I call you Dr. Nadolsky? Uh, how important is exercise for overall health?
2: Yeah, I would say you know if I have my pillars or whatever of of health that that it's I would put it up there with nutrition and sleep, um, uh, just equally. So I would say as physical activity, exercise in general, uh, is just as. But eat important. less, move more, sleep more.
1: That's the that's your that's, that's that, it. Right, well, that's the pack the it, try up, pack it up. We're <laughs> done. <helps. laughs> um, it, w- do you have any sort of gestalt or, or feeling um, uh, about the following the following statistics? So uh, if you look at data on um, the physical activity guidelines for adults that were originally put out in 2008, revised in 2010, it is suggested that 50% of Americans are meeting the physical activity guideline minimums for aerobic fitness, right? And and a quarter of those are actually doing it for aerobic and resistance training, right? So... A quarter of all Americans are meeting the minimum. Do you think do you think that's accurate? Do you think that we're No, I don't, <laughs> know. I don't know what like
2: I, I I'd like to see how they did the these the surveys I don't I mean, I'm getting a lot of selection bias with sampling bias or with my patients now Because uh, they're coming all over the place. They've been following me for fitness and now. They're coming to me online, but um, uh, When I was in the clinic most people in general they didn't do a damn thing. Most normal people, and like, whether it's lifting, whether it's running, biking, even if it was just walking and getting their steps in per day, they, I, don't, I very few people got what I would think is uh, a good amount of exercise. Yeah. I mean,
1: that's been my experience, too. Just, I mean, if 25% of my self-selected patient or client population was getting in the recommended uh, amount of exercise that's put forth by those guidelines, I would be very surprised. A- I mean, the data comes from like NHANES sort of questionnaire stuff where people are filling it out. And yeah. I think that there people are as likely to under report or over report activity as they are to underreport calorie intake. Yeah. It's like the yeah. average yeah. Americans eating 1800 calories <laughs> and we're in training, you know, 10 hours a week. It's <laughs> that, that's probably yeah. s- seems unlikely. Um, okay. So exercise, obviously important for health. And I, I think that the data is very uh, robust at, uh, at how, Act regular activity it improves outcomes for literally every physiological system organ system that we have. I mean, you know, you can go through a systems based approach and you're finding, Oh wow. Yeah. It's good for cognition. Oh, it's good for your pulmonary health, the cardiorespiratory health. Like, yeah. Okay. That's, that's a, a, a no brainer. It seems like in my opinion, what about for weight management? You know, there's an exercise scientist somewhere in their parents' basement listening to this and they're saying, you know, well exercise isn't important for like weight management, man. Like, you know, do these guys know that? What's your, what's your take on, on exercise for like weight management, weight loss, stuff like that?
2: Yeah. So the idea of that we could just eat whatever we want and then outrun our fork, that's kind of been dismantled over the years that we have this constrained amount of energy that we can eventually burn, uh, just using exercise alone. Uh, but when they when you look at the data and you look at the averages, it's about 300 minutes per week uh, that helps with uh, at least weight and maintenance, preventing weight
1: regain and, um, and managing, yeah,
2: yeah. So if, and you know there needs to be some more trials actually looking at that, but there from all these all the different data that they're putting together, including randomized control trials, but other things um, and retrospective data. That's that's about the amount that's optimal, at least to keep the weight off or at least help from a physical activity standpoint but uh from an actual weight loss standpoint if you go from completely sedentary to just minimal amounts that will actually have a big a big impact but otherwise i don't i uh you know my biggest thing is i i try to just get my patients to move any little bit because so many people just at least in the clinic like i said now people are doing all sorts of stuff when they see me online but in the clinic people just didn't do anything so i try to get them to walk i try to get them at least two Two days a week of some sort of resistance training if if they allow for it and then hopefully i can get them to go bike riding and, and more walks with their spouses um uh and that type so of thing. so you're
1: actually holding like your recommendations are are similar to the physical activity guidelines for adults the the twice weekly resistance training and either four days a week of moderate intensity cardio or three days of vigorous at at the very least i mean
2: ideally so like I always say it like this. I think two days a week of resistance training isn't going to get your isn't going to get you the body or physique that you probably want. When people come in wanting to look better, I don't think two days a week is going to be optimal for that. But I think it's probably a minimal effective dose. Uh, I think ideally, you know, you got we could talk about three versus four, maybe five, six day splits and things like that. But um, using strength training as a as a means to hold on to your muscle mass well and continue to keep your bones strong too, by the way, is very important for women uh, as they use then your, their diet specifically to, to to decrease their fat mass. That would be ideal. And then adding in a little bit of cardio uh, aerobic training just for cardio respiratory fitness, and maybe to add in a little bit of extra um, uh, caloric deficit to uh, augment the process. But that's, yeah, that's about about uh, so, are you
1: actually writing like exercise plans for patients or are you just giving them general guidelines? I I have like templates
2: that that I give very like most of the people that see me uh, are more beginner uh, type of people. Some are some are what they would consider intermediate. But I think most people are actually in the beginner. Like what most be, like I, I bench pressed uh, the most I did was. Um, I did 405 five times in college on a bench. not the strongest family doctor, i never maxed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no so I, I never i never i um, never s- uh, squatted uh, uh, maxed or anything but i was I was pretty strong um but but like if somebody wanted more advanced training I would send them to guys like you for that type of thing but I find that most people could just have a progressive three day a week Uh, weight training program and just keep getting stronger and stronger and never even have to get into that more advanced training. So uh, I find that giving them templates that they can do without pain and that's somewhat balanced tends to do the trick. Um, And again, if they want to get more obsessive about it, which I think is great because those people tend to do the great best, that's where I start sending them to guys like you who really get into the nuances of variables in training.
1: Uh, Austin, do you have any comments on that as far as how you're I mean, if you get somebody who's brand new, never lifted anything before, never exercised formally before, or it's been some period of time, do you have any input on like how you would actually go about prescribing exercise to them?
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of similar to when you asked about Spencer's uh, initial approach to a patient from a nutritional standpoint, where you kind of have to get a sense of where they're coming from, uh, what their fears might be, what kind of resources they have access to, things like that, because it's easy to be like, you know oh yeah, you just go to the local, you know, black iron gym and unrack <laughs> a bar and squat it five times. And it's like, I could be dealing with like, you know, a middle-aged female with like extensive history of like anxiety or depression. And she lives in the inner city and she like, you know what I mean? So you, yeah. so you get a sense for, you know, again, all this whole kind of psychosocial context that people have going on, what they're, what they're, you know, I, I kind of would, um, After getting them on board with the idea of this is an important thing that you should do, I try to kind of fish from them. Like, what do you think is something that, you know, you might be able to start with doing that kind of thing rather than being kind of like very rigid, top down prescribing. If I can get a sense from them as to where we could start, assuming I'm going to have follow up with this person to, to kind of nudge them in the direction of progressive overload over time. Um, would probably be the place that I would start. And I would agree if I could get somebody started on uh, two days of the minimum of resistance training and then eventually bump that up to three, that'd be great. If I could get them to do one to two days of conditioning over time on top of that, which starts to push a lot of people's like scheduling and like time commitment willingness. Uh, but 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 for the more, again, for the more neurotic types, for example, they might be willing to do that. Uh, I would totally go for that. And then I totally agree that most people uh, most people are, you know, when they're coming in, they're in novice, land from as it pertains to physical development and so we can introduce them to stuff and then you know through the process there as with any other intervention you do, there's going to be some amount of dropout along the way. You're going to lose some people. Some people are going to do great. Again, this kind of spectrum of of response. And then the high, the high end of the responders, they're going to be the people that want to stick to it, get really hardcore, get more advanced. And that's where all the complicated training kind of stuff comes in is the better you want to get, the more complicated this stuff has to be. But for basic health uh, outcomes, it really doesn't take that much.
1: Now I put people basically on a block periodization, undulating waves of uh accommodating resi- no i mean <laughs> it's yeah i, I think it, it, i agree it, well so a, a question we we do get all the time is like what is for health general health and and i think you need to define that so it just be the absence of premature mor- morbidity or mortality secondary to physical you know inactivity like how much training do you actually need to to Lord, do that and I, I don't actually think it's that much um and, and and so usually what I do is I'll, I'll describe this sort of physical utopia. Like, here's where I'd want you to be, you know, just and that's probably going to be that two to three times a week of resistance training, one to two or maybe more, depending on the person, to, uh, episodes of conditioning per week. Like, that's where I want to go. All right. So they have this idea like that's kind of like long term planning and then like, all right, well, what can you do today? Right. Start there. And then manipulate as you can to sort of go uh towards that uh towards that that aim and i think um yeah it's a it's a bottoms-up approach uh to that and and i think if you really distill down the best evidence we have currently that the amount of training that you'd actually need to sort of optimize health outcomes is reasonably low such that i think that everybody could do that Uh, the bigger issue is going to be weight maintenance and i think that to the degree you're going to use exercise as either a prevention of weight regain or additional calorie burn to sort of help, you know, the other interventions you're doing that, that amount's going to, going to going vary. But uh, so I think that's good. Yeah. So we agree. Good. We don't have to argue and come to fisticuffs.
2: Well, I don't think so.
1: Yeah. Cause it's like a J shaped curve. I mean, it's for,
2: you go from sedentary and then just a little bit now, like you said, yeah, the guidelines, 150 minutes, whatever, but, even just a little bit will go far away compared to if you go from a little bit to a lot of bit. Uh, that's my yeah, there's like
1: a, there's a, a plateau as far as health is concerned. And there's probably there's an inflection point at some point where where so much training or so many resources are being devoted or so many lifestyle choices or behavioral choices are being made towards performance. Where health actually tends to suffer on, on some level. Yeah. yeah I and mean, that's high level performance. People will say, well, the highest level performers are the healthiest. And it's like, I don't think you necessarily know what's yeah. going on under the hood on <laughs> these, yeah. all these, all these, all these folks. Um, you know, a, another question we get a lot of time, uh, 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 very frequently, that I think it'd be good for all of us to answer. You know, why do you think that doctors have a hard time prescribing exercise? You know, the, the, yeah, it's, I think simply,
2: I, I know it sounds cliche and we talk that doctors doesn't even lift. <laughs> it was ingrained in me. It was ingrained in me at a young age. My dad was the wrestling football coach and chemistry teacher. He had the key to the weight room for the high school. And you, there's videos of me and my brother. I was seven years old. He was like 11 or, or, or so. And we were working out with my dad. Um, uh, so, you know. I, I always knew, I was like, I want to use lifting as medicine. You you very early had barbell medicine. You wanted to use lifting as medicine. You're, you two guys are meatheads. I'm a meathead. We love lifting <laughs> as medicine. Uh, uh, now, you take the, <laughs> take the average physician, probably didn't lift in high school, you know, a little bit of a bookworm. That's nothing wrong. They're smart people. There are people that are super smart doctors that don't lift. Better clinicians than we'll ever be, maybe, but um, uh, uh, but they they never got that exposure. And so in medical school, we don't learn about exercise. All we know is that exercise and lifestyle is good, but we don't learn the nuances of it. We don't get in depth into programming or whatever. Uh, and and so then if so then you take that and then you go into practice and you're like, yeah, you should go, you know, run or something. I know that's exercise. You see people. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Get out of my office.
2: Get, Get out of my office. Go eat, eat less, move more. Go, go do a, go to the gym or something like that. If if you yourself don't do it and don't see the amazing benefits of it, and and then you keep um, perpetuating this idea of just kind of going exercise, going and running and whatever. If you don't see those benefits in your patients, you're not going to keep perpetuating the idea of resistance training as medicine, and you're not going to look at the research anyway. We're very into it. We love resistance training. We love working out. And so we we love picking out all the studies that show resistance training is amazing. It's just as good as aerobic training in this type of – in this situation. Combine them, you get even better results. Other people are just going to think exercise. They're thinking of aerobic training. That's what somebody else, some other doctor and what they remember from medical school. They're not even looking at the studies. That's why I
1: think anyway. Yeah. Austin, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I, I agree.
0: I think it's lack of experience themselves, lack of time in the clinical setting. A lot of times in, in you know, if you if you have a, a clinic practice set up where you're seeing, you know, 40 patients a day with 10 to 50 minute appointments and they have 12 problems to go through. That's obviously oh, a God. difficult situation. Uh, still, 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 still working in that environment a little bit. Oh. Uh, and then. uh and uh, yeah, I mean, on, on top of that, it's basically that they are dispensing uh, kind of the lay understanding of exercise with the authority of having the letters after their name. Yeah. Because they don't have exp- you know experience with it. So all of a sudden the same thing that you would hear anybody else talking about on the street, like, oh, just get a little exercise or walk more, or like gardening is adequate exercise or something like that, all of a sudden carries this additional authority with it. And so if even if you do give the exercise recommendations, they are hopelessly neutered in effectiveness. Um, yeah. so,
1: so yeah, yep, I agree. I mean, and that comports with the existing data, like on that is looked at, you know, what is the, you know, what are the stats of doctors recommending exercise in, in clinical practice and why they don't. So, you know, most of the time they, they it is suggested that it's lack of time, lack of personal experience, right? So the doctor's like, mm, I don't know what to do. I haven't done this before. And then they also say that, Hey, if I'm out of shape, like I'm not going to recommend like somebody else, like, exercise because there'd be cognitive dissonance there you'd be like well you're out of shape i'm out of shape we should both exercise but i'm not going to do it so yeah (laughs) so so i I actually don't think that's like a lack of resources you know i mean the their traditional response to something like this would be like all right well let's make this huge initiative and go provide more resources and that's going to turn the tide." but i think that you know if you look at that data and you take it to heart and you say all right so lack of time more resources isn't really going to help that other unless that resource is time uh lack of personal experience that you know having more pamphlets out there for people to give to to patients that's not gonna well i'm I'm saying you know like hey you should exercise and here's how you should do it that's not going to necessarily help with personal experience and then being out of shape that's that's not necessarily going to be the initiative that's going to turn the tide rather i think that you know currently our society particularly in america is big on physical fitness i mean you know in the in the 50s and 60s you know people our age were going to concerts and you know smoking cigarettes and uh, you know and, other, and 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 doing other things but that physical culture wasn't in the public eye you know the people weren't having protein bars on the regular for like <laughs> their nutrition you know that's just different so now I think with this latest like sort of uh, importance placed on physical culture and your, your appearance and aesthetics and everything else I actually think this is getting pushed. Uh, more to the forefront so I, i'm hoping that that we can leverage that to get more doctors training more more in, uh, uh interest in this sort of thing and 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 you know at that point resources like exercises medicine that the acsm is it came up with a few years ago will be very useful but right now that resource exists right it's like this huge compendium of like data on exercise and how it can prevent disease and how you can refer and what you need to do just nobody's going to the website you know, I assume that one day I'm going to go to the website and it's going to be like GoDaddy has now owns this domain because we failed to like update the thing.
2: It I remember it coming out in 2007 ish. That's right when uh, I got into medical school and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then it was a few years later, they hadn't even updated it. Like, and I was kind of like, what's going on here? And I I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And it just, um, yeah, it would be nice if that got into medical schools, like. Maybe everybody sh- should have gym class in medical school. Hundred
1: <laughs> you know? percent. Yeah, like something. Yeah. I, don't yeah, know. I think it'd be cool if there was, you know, a push for yeah, we're gonna have a like a uh in the preclinical years we're having this sort of two year long, you know, physical well being course and there's like a culinary aspect to it, there's like a training aspect to it, and you're learning sort of these practical interventions that you can use when counseling patients. I mean, we start from our very first year of medicine, medical school, like hey, this is how you talk to a patient. It's like, all right, cool. So we're learning stylistically how to do that and how to get the information we want. But, but as far as content-wise, we could use a little more training doing that. I'd much rather have have that be, uh, a, a part of the curriculum than, than, you know, another problem-based learning group on, on, you know, consider that you're standing on the edge of an airplane, uh, and the atmospheric pressure is this, you know, what goes on in respiratory physiology-wise? Like that, I prefer that we have a, a, phys- a physical, uh, well-being course, uh, or something like that. But at the Barbell Medicine University, uh, School of Medicine, we'll, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll do that. BB, B- 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 som so, uh, <laughs> stay tuned for my, for my endowment. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's my future of exercise as, as far as lifestyle modification and clinical practice. Like that's, you know, people ask, what would you do if you got a billion dollars? What would you do? Well, oh, I start medical school. That's what i would do. And then, you know, I'd be in cool. charge of like shaping the future, you know, um, where do you see the future of exercise is like, lifestyle modification or as adjunctive treatment in clinical practice. Where do you see that going? Spencer,
2: I, I do. I, I see it becoming, I mean, there are places that are adding in like culinary courses. And I, I, I think, I think it's the way of the future. I think we're kind of on that forefront um, of making it seem kind of sexy. Uh, you know, barbell medicine, you, you know, like people, I think, you know, and even CrossFit, Um, you know, they're, they, they're coming out with their CrossFit health thing and I, you know, I don't necessarily agree with all their messages, but they're putting, they're trying to get all physicians to a CrossFit certified if they want to. I don't know if it's, it comes with a fee, but I know, um, that's their initiative. I, I don't think it's a bad thing getting, you know, physicians into exercise, but, uh, I think ideally, I think the coolest situation would have doctors clinics attached to gyms. I, that might be a little bit. Crazy sounding, but I think that would be pretty cool. Um
1: Look, uh, you're removing barriers. You you have a patient, you know, Jane Doe comes in and you're like, Jane, so we need to do this with your nutrition, here's your specific intervention. Uh we're gonna have regular follow-up with our RDE who's down the you know, down the hall, and uh we're gonna have regular follow-up with me so I can evaluate this thing. And oh also, you know, the trainer is down the hall too, so and you're gonna be go twice weekly, see this trainer, and they're gonna give you the uh your prescription. Well, so basically exactly, it's all handled
0: in house. That's exactly the situation I was talking about earlier, as like the impossible situation that we sometimes run into from a psychosocial standpoint, you're getting all that stuff out of the way and they can go down the hall and 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 do it which sounds sounds awesome and i agree that i think that probably the way based on how medicine has kind of evolved say probably in the past 10 to 15 to 20 years that it's going to become more of this multidisciplinary type deal where instead of you know the doctor's appointment just getting longer and longer and longer in order to address all the medical problems um, you know, now we're seeing stuff like pharmacists kind of jumping into yep. the clinic uh, to help with some medication management or, you know, medication titration, insulin adjustments, blood pressure medicine, just stuff like that. We're going to see RDs jumping in. Hopefully we can see some, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, training related thing. Uh, PTs, stuff like that would all be, you know, beneficial if we could if we could kind of develop that sort of a system under one
1: roof. Yep. Yeah, it would be. Y- you can just say just just go down the hall. That's the <laughs> yeah, very cool, uh, Spencer. It's been awesome having you. Uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of give your your closing thoughts. This would be like the Jerry Springer section, you know, your final thoughts. Um, anything that you want to put out into the interwebs uh, for people.
2: Yeah, no, I would just say understand that obesity is a is a complex disease. Whether you want to call it a disease or condition, I don't really care. It doesn't matter. I personally think of it as a disease. Just understand it's complex and it's hard to solve and it's not just gonna be eat less, move more. Those are the components that need to be involved. It's doing that is gonna be very difficult. I think that's one key component just to kind of wrap that up. Understanding that going from nothing to something in terms of physical activity and nutrition, improving nutrition is going to go a long ways as opposed to going from doing pretty well to this super, uh, uh unicorn optimal level of nutrition and exercise. And I, am uh, you know, that's, that's basically my big thing, getting people to do simple, basic stuff. And if they want more advanced stuff, yeah, we could work on that, get them to the right people. If they want to, Bench press and squat a million pounds. I'll get them to you guys type of thing, but just getting people going from nothing to something is what I, I would like to do.
0: Well, well, we will be sure to thank you for this interesting, interesting consult on the bench. press. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Plan for primary. Uh, okay, great. And then where can people find you? Where, where are you at on the, on the social medias? Uh, how can people contact
2: Instagram you? Instagram is at Dr. Nadolsky. D R N A D O L S K Y. Uh, Facebook's, uh, doctor Dr. period, Spencer, uh, Nadolski. And then, uh, my blog is Dr. Spencer.com, drspencer.com. D R S P E N C E R.com. And also That's Dr. Great. Lift. Dr. Lift, Who Lift. I think you're on Docks Who Lift before as well. Uh, but maybe we need to put both of you guys on there.
1: Nice. Docs who, lift.org. No. Um, okay, cool. Well, Hey, thanks for joining us, Austin. Thanks for being here as yeah. always. Yeah. Thanks. Barbel medicine crew, Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next time. All right, over on the barbellmedicine.com website or amazon.com, we are selling Perry RX. That is our Peri workout blend. We have two versions without caffeine, one version with caffeine, for those who want to treat it as a pre-workout. It's got everything you need from a Peri workout supplementation standpoint to improve your performance, maximize your recovery, and hopefully you see a little benefit. We also sell a very high-quality whey protein Iceland. That's also available on the amazon.com website or our website, barbellmedicine.com.